if I haven't met you, there's actually a, a couple people in here I haven't met yet. My name's Chris, and along with Wade, I get the great joy of pastoring Missio Dei Peoria here. And we are going through Ecclesiastes right now. And so if you don't know Ecclesiastes in your Bible, it's, it's the book after Proverbs. It's part of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, which includes Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes, okay? And Ecclesiastes is a little bit different from the other two. Uh, in fact, it's quite different from the rest of the Bible, and I know we did a really good job of setting this up the last two weeks. I wasn't here, but I listened to the podcast. It's a great tool, by the way. You guys should be subscribed to that podcast. Uh, but it did a great job of setting that up, and so I'm just going to give a brief review, especially for those who maybe weren't here with us. And so wisdom literature in, in the scriptures, and particularly in the Old Testament, uh, really helps us to think about what, what's the wisest way to approach life. At least that's what we think. And, and Proverbs, for example, really says in general, hey, do this and things will go well for you. Do that and things will go bad for you, right? That's kind of Proverbs. In fact, I went to this men's conference at this huge mega church in Dallas one time and the conference was about like, hey, these are the things Proverbs say so that you can have a successful business. And I was like, I don't own a business. I am in the wrong crowd here. Uh, but it, it, there was this, this idea like, hey, if you do these things, if you follow this formula, then things will go well for you. And so what Ecclesiastes does is it takes that and it goes, hold on. In general, yes. Maybe on paper, yes. Like that makes sense and it's true. But all of us live in a world where we can do all the right things and stuff still goes terribly wrong don't we? And so I love the honesty of the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. I love that reality of like, look, this is the way things are supposed to go, but sometimes life just doesn't make sense. And so what do we do with that? And so Ecclesiastes is from this perspective of, uh, of the Hebrew word koheleth, which just means the teacher or the one who gathers people together to teach and he uses this word a lot. Your Bibles might say it as vanity, or maybe some of yours say it as meaningless. The Hebrew word there is hevel. Everybody say hevel. All right, we're going to use that today, okay? Hevel. So hold on to that. When I say something later, you're going to think I'm saying something else. I'm saying hevel. Hevel in the Hebrew actually means something more like a vapor, a breath, or smoke. And you can see smoke, it's a real thing, it's there, but you can't quite grasp it, can you? It's not super tangible. You can't really get a hold of it. And what he's saying over and over throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is that all of these things in life are like chasing after wind. And you see it in your sight, but you just can't quite get a hold of it. And so what he starts doing is he starts comparing and contrasting different areas of life. And he says, they're all hevel. It's not that they're pointless. It's not that they don't matter. It's that in this life, sometimes when you think you're chasing after something, it's fleeting from you. You can't quite get a hold of it. And so he starts comparing different areas of life. So for example, this morning, what we're going to be looking at, at the end of chapter one and all of chapter two, 
Wade only gave himself 11 verses. He gave me more than a chapter. But, this is Hevel. But, what we're looking at in there is he's comparing these two extremes. So, being really, really wise in life and then being really foolish. Being a really hard worker in life, which a lot of us would put that under the conventional wisdom category. Or just seeking after the pleasures of this world that are temporary and fleeting, which a lot of us would put under the foolish category, right? And so, it's really this same idea he keeps going back and forth through. And he poetically interweaves those back and forth. And so I might read the text a little bit out of the order it's in this morning because what he does is he goes, here's wisdom, here's pleasure, here's folly, here's work. And my mind doesn't quite work the way the teachers does. And so I'm going to kind of just put the two in their category where they belong. So we'll talk about wisdom and folly, work and pleasure. Does that make sense? Okay. And so he's comparing and contrasting. The other day we were driving home. I forget where we were coming from. Um, but our boys were asking a lot of questions in the car as they do. And I usually don't have good answers for them. But they were talking about something and I, I don't even remember what it was. But my wife said, well, What's happening is, is we're comparing these two things. And I don't even remember what the two things were, but she's, she brought this word. We're putting them in comparison. And Canon, my nine-year-old, goes, actually, Mom, comparing something is when you find the similarities. Contrasting is when you find the differences. So what you mean is we're contrasting those two things. Yeah. Thank you, teachers in the room. So... What the teacher of Ecclesiastes is doing is he's comparing and contrasting. He's taking two different things, but he's saying at the end of the day, they all come to the same outcome. It's all hevel. And so read with me. We're going to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we're starting in verse 12. And I have this tiny little Bible. It's a cute little Bible here this morning, which is why I'm wearing my spectacles. Uh, because we're actually going to be looking at the NIV translation today. The, I don't know. I know. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> Some people just felt like I like, totally just threw out Orthodox Christianity out the window just now. And other people are like, thank you, I can understand this today. Um, NIV, so first, the ESV does a great job of translating each individual word to its, like close to its original meaning, uh, with the exception of Hevel. I think they didn't do a great job, personally. Uh, but the NIV does more of like, hey, let's take this idea they're talking about and translate it more into an idea we'll get. So for example, if you were to translate what a flat is in England, or you get that word flat, you translate it. For us, we think flat. But they're talking about an apartment, right? And so we can get that word in the ESV, but if we don't understand the whole context, we might get a little lost. Usually we read from the ESV. For those of you who are going to send me emails later, I'm just trying to explain. Today, we'll do the NIV. And the only NIV I had in my house, aside from my phone, was this little guy. So here we go. I'm going to read just uh, into chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Then we're going to pray. We'll talk a little bit. We'll dive into chapter two, talk a little bit. We'll do a little bit of that back and forth. All right, Ecclesiastes 1, verse 12. The teacher speaking. He says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. 
I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on the human race. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I've grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. And then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Father, there is a lot of uncertainty in our world and in this room. There are a lot of things being chased after. And there's a lot of wondering what is the point. And so God, I'm trusting right now that you are more powerful than that. That your word, your grace, your gospel is bigger than all of our doubts and our wondering and our chasing and our striving. And we pray that your word would illuminate our hearts to what is the true thing this morning and what is the better thing. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was gone the last two Sundays we gathered because my wife and I uh, went on a cruise <laughs> with my dad and my, uh, with my parents, my dad and my stepmom. So, all right, before you're starting to think like, man, we are paying our pastors way too much money. Let me just explain. Uh, my parents have a timeshare, which allowed them to use their points to book a cruise. They offered to take Bethany and I on, and it was free of charge. We had to, the port was in Orlando, Florida, but we had points through Southwest because of flying for different work-related things. And so our flight was covered. Like, it was, it was pretty much a free trip. It was, it was a huge blessing. We're so thankful we got to do it. Uh, we did go on a cruise several years ago, a smaller cruise, and that time I went with a completely different mindset and understanding. And I, I had a different level of enjoyment too. Because this time we're on this cruise and I couldn't help but notice the beauty of God's goodness and creation contrasted, Canon taught me that, contrasted with the brokenness and the sin of this world. Everywhere I looked. And so as an example, we're standing on the top of the boat of this giant cruise ship, looking at the most beautiful sunset I've seen probably ever over the ocean. And I'm thinking, this is an incredible piece of artwork by our God. But it's being overcast by the smokestack of the cruise ship with pollution that we're dumping in. Or we're, we're eating this beautiful, amazing, delicious meal that God created with potential and he allowed human beings to, to masterfully put the seasonings and the, the different flavors together and to cook it at just the right temperature for just the right amount of time and it melts in your mouth at the same time that I'm seeing 
people in their motorized scooters go from buffet line to buffet line, just excess. And they're talking about how many meals they make a day. And it's like so wasteful. We're adding it up with how many people are on the ship, and it doesn't make sense. And then you get off on to the port, and you go to this island that is beautiful, lush, green, tropical island. Amazing, clear, crystal water around it. And you drive around on this tour, and you see what poverty is like on that island, too. Just constantly this beauty of God's creation, the goodness in the world, and the brokenness of humanity. And this is kind of like what the teacher in Ecclesiastes is seeing all throughout life, is he's seeing the, the things that should be mingled with the things that are. You see, where the author of Ecclesiastes is in the story is really key for us in understanding what it is he's talking about. And we got a slide of our, our six symbols of the true story of Scripture. And if you were to look at your Bible... And if you were to look at from like Genesis 3 over to right before Matthew in the New Testament, and if you were to grab that and pinch it with your fingers, you would see that's a pretty big chunk of our Bible, right? And often we just skip over it. We want to we get to the part about Jesus. But if this is not just a collection of different ideas and thoughts and morals and different fragmented stories, but actually one true story then we need to understand that part as well. And we need to understand that part to really know where Ecclesiastes is coming from. And so what we know is that the author of Ecclesiastes has heard of creation and he sees evidence of it everywhere. They have the Torah, they have the, the Bible, the Pentateuch, the first five books. And so he knows this account of creation and the goodness that God has made. But he also knows that in Genesis 3, Something happens, it goes terribly wrong, right? The rebellion of humanity against their creator causes brokenness, sin, disease, death, sadness to enter into this world. And unfortunately for the author of Ecclesiastes, they haven't yet gotten to our fourth symbol there of redemption coming in Jesus, as was promised by God at the beginning, right? And so this period of time that the author of Ecclesiastes is living in is that third symbol of this promise, this waiting. God's people Israel waiting that God said he would send someone to make all things right again, but it hasn't yet happened. And so what Ecclesiastes is trying to do in the words of one commentator that wouldn't I have been blessed enough to hear from and learn from in our seminary, Craig Bartholomew says this, he says, Ecclesiastes is trying to make sense of Genesis one and two in a Genesis three world trying to make sense of the goodness of God's work, his handiwork, and the pleasures of his good creation at the beginning. Genesis 1 and 2, we hear that. Trying to make sense of that, knowing it's true, seeing remnants of it, while living in a Genesis 3 world where sin has entered and things have gone terribly wrong. So that's where we find ourselves. That's where the author of Ecclesiastes finds himself. And what he's doing is he's looking at different ways that you can look at life and different ways to try to make it through a Genesis 3 world. And he's basically coming to this conclusion that because sin entering the world and the penalty of that sin is death, separation from the giver of life, pretty much everything at this point is meaningless. 
or it's Hebel. You can chase after it, but it is fleeting from you. It's but a breath. That breath is real. That breath exists and it gives life, but it's gone in a moment. As is everything else in this world, says the author. And so he starts comparing and contrasting the wisdom and the folly of men and women, the pleasures of this world to enjoy that are fleeting and the the toil and the things that we can accomplish with our work, with our hands. So let's take a look at some of that. We're going to look first in chapter 2. We're going to skip down a little bit to verse 12. So he already started a little bit explaining about wisdom and folly. and Let's see what the author of Ecclesiastes might have learned, the teacher. Verse 12 of chapter 2 says, Then I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while fools walk in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. So what then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is hevel, meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Just like the fool, the wise too must die. The other book of wisdom literature in the Old Testament, Job, paints this story for us that I I often heard growing up being taught this way of like, Job is a righteous man. He does all the right things in wisdom and in faith to God, and God blesses him for it. That's what Proverbs says, right? Do the right things, good will happen. But then something interesting happens that changes that pattern. All of a sudden, there's a wrench thrown in, and God allows Satan to go and tempt Job. And not only tempt him, but to take all those things that he worked for away from him. His stuff his land, his health, his family. And he's sitting there going, what just happened? But here's, here's what I was always taught in Job is that, but at the end of the day, because Job was persistent in his faith, because he never, he never cursed God like his wife told him to do, just curse God and die already. No, he, he holds on. God is the one in control. And though he questions at times why this is happening, he at least directs his questioning to God, recognizing he's the one in charge. At the end of the day, Job gets back everything that was taken from him, plus more than he had. And so at the end of the day, wisdom wins, right? At the end of the day, Job still does what is right, and he still gets what is good. And then along comes Koheleth and Ecclesiastes, the teacher. And he says, yeah, but you know what? At the end of the day, Job still dies. Job still, his body decomposes, it's eaten by worms, it rots, and it turns to dust. Ecclesiastes is a pretty depressed dude, isn't he? At the end of the day, it doesn't matter because Job's fate is the same fate as the fool who squanders everything. The same fate as the one who did curse God and died. And so really, at the end of the day, what is the point? 
And that's a pretty bleak way of looking at life, we think, right? Like, what is this dude's deal? Why is he so depressed? The problem is, we find what we read at the beginning, at the end of chapter 1. Verse 18, he says this, For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. See, even when the teacher talks about exploring madness and folly, he says, but I still did this with my wisdom intact. What he's doing is he's saying, I still know what's right, but I'm trying to live the way that these other people are living that seem to be getting ahead in life or seem to be happy or seem to be enjoying pleasures. And I'm going to see if that works for me. And it doesn't because he still has the wisdom of eternity. He knows that there is an end of the story coming. He knows the promise of God that I will set all things right. So he knows this is not the way it's supposed to be. More wisdom, more grief. It's funny, I was reading this and I couldn't help but think of two more modern day philosophers that I feel like just totally bit from Ecclesiastes here. Verse 18 of chapter 1, he says, For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. And I immediately thought of Uncle Ben from Spider-Man. With great power comes great responsibility, right? And then, my favorite one, the more knowledge, the more grief. You know who that made me think of? Five bucks to whoever can tell me. The notorious B.I.G., ladies and gentlemen. Great philosopher. Mo money, mo problems. That's right. Yeah, he totally took that from Ecclesiastes. Mo wisdom, mo grief. It's a problem. The more you understand what is true and right in this world, the more you understand the story that we're living in, that there's got to be something more than this, the less you're able to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of this world. He still had his wisdom intact while he explored folly. And he said, this, this doesn't work. There's no way this could work. Because I know there's got to be something more. And so he starts looking at pleasures. And maybe some of us can, can understand where he's coming from with this. When we turn first to chapter 2 and verse 1. And he says to himself, come now. I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. He's speaking to himself. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. You see that? He recognizes in the picture of eternity that your time here is little. And this is his source of discontentment. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. All right, what he's saying there is he built stuff for himself, a beautiful home and garden, but he also did things for others. He built reservoirs that would nourish other trees, fruit trees that would nourish other people. He built parks for others to enjoy. So even the work 
for himself and for other people was not enough. Finding pleasure for himself, helping others find pleasure, it's still not enough. And I'm wondering, what are the things that you're seeking after for pleasure, for satisfaction, for happiness right now? What are the things that you're thinking, if I can just get this, if this would just happen for me, then that would be enough. Because this man here, I can guarantee, he got way more than any of us have experienced so far. And he still says it's not enough. So maybe it's not found in the stuff you enjoy. Maybe it's more found in the things that you can accomplish, right? And so he goes on in verse 7. I bought male and female slaves and other slaves who were born in my house. By the way, Scripture's not abdicating for slavery right there. It's saying this guy at this point said, I'm just going to give in to whatever my flesh desires and see if it's good. He says, I also own more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well. There's a little footnote. We don't know what harem means is what the footnote says. So this dude has like all this stuff plus something we don't even know what it is. It's a lot of stuff. The delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. And yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. What is that thing that you're hoping for? What is that thing that you're just like, man, if I can just see that, experience that, have that, maybe it's a person, a relationship. Maybe it's a status, a place of authority or power or recognition. Maybe if I could just accomplish this thing. And the teacher's saying it's never enough. None of it. Doesn't matter what pleasures you go after, you chase after. It's all fleeting. And he knows this because he kept his wisdom with him as he examined all of it. See, this is where Proverbs totally backs up what Ecclesiastes is saying. Because in Proverbs 31, if you just go a page before Ecclesiastes, in verse 6, It says, let strong drink be for those who are perishing, wine for those who are in anguish. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Have you ever heard uh, like an argument in scripture for letting people drink in excess? It's right there. Proverbs 31, 6 and 7. Let those who are perishing, meaning they don't have an eternity, they don't have an eye on eternity, They don't have a hope for something more. Just let them enjoy the pleasures of today then because what else is there? But this guy in Ecclesiastes, he knows there's more, so he can't. 
He can't just give in to that. He can't just let that be his full satisfaction. It is not enough. And so he turns from looking at just things that will please him in the moment, the temporary, fleeting things, and he looks to maybe I can accomplish something then. Maybe I can build something that will last. Have you ever felt like your work was meaningless? Your toil, as he says in here. Do you guys ever use that word toil for work, by the way? Yeah, toil is a very negative (laughs) connotation for work. Like, it it means that you are laboring hard. That it's, it's causing you grief and strife and pain to get that work done. And that's what he calls work, toil. And he says that that too is meaningless. It's hevel. Which kind of reminds me of one of the first things of work that I thought was hevel. I didn't know the word hevel at the time. But uh, when I was in high school, I actually was really good at this because I became very OCD. And so my bed would be like, I would make it every morning. There would not be a wrinkle in my sheets. I've gone back to my old ways. I don't do that anymore. When I was a kid, when I was younger in like elementary school, my mom would ask me to make my bed in the morning, and I would be like, why? What's the point? It's hevel. If only I knew Ecclesiastes then. If I had that like in my tool belt, I could have won this argument, but I didn't. And I was like, but what's the point? I'm going to make it this morning. I'm going to get back in it tonight, and it's going to mess up the sheets again. And then tomorrow morning, you're going to have me make my bed again. And then the same thing just happens over and over and over. What is the point? And she was like, just go make your bed. <laughs> so I did. But this is what the teacher's talking about. There are things that you do, and it doesn't last, and you got to do it again. And it doesn't last. And it feels like this is meaningless. This is fleeting. It's a vapor of breath. Like, okay, great. It's here now and it's good now, but it's going to be gone tomorrow. What is the point? It's all hevel. And so we're going to play a game right now called what the hevel. <laughs> I told you, remember that word. Remember what I'm saying, okay? You're going to think, what the hevel? And so I just gave you an example of something that I thought was hevel in my youth of making your bed. And so I want you guys to be able to turn to someone next to you and just share something in your life right now that you feel like this is just hevel. Why do I do this? And so it could be something in your workplace. I go and I clock in the same place Monday through Friday, day in, day out, and I do the same things and it never seems to make a difference. I teach the same students, they never seem to learn a thing, right? It could be in your homes. I teach my kids over and over, they never seem to get it. What is a thing in your life that you are putting your hand to, your work, your toil, that seems pointless, meaningless, fleeting, it's hevel. I'm gonna give you a moment, think about that. And go ahead and turn to someone next to you and tell them what is hevel in your life. All right. So remember that thing. Lock it in to your memory. We'll come back to the game in a moment, okay? You're like, please don't make me talk to someone again. (laughs) This is weird. (laughs) Don't worry. It's going to be fine. You're going to make it. 
You're like, this, talking to someone next to me is Hevel. What are we doing? No, it's, it's going to make sense, okay? So hold on to that thing. You feel like it's just Hevel. It's fleeting. It's meaningless. Why do I do this over and over and over again? I guess just to get a paycheck if it's work, or I guess so that I can get that degree if it's school, or I guess so that I don't strangle my kids if it's at home, whatever, right? So hold on to that, and we'll come back to it in a little bit. But the teacher now turns to work. He, he started to do that as, in that section of talking about pleasure and fleeting pleasures. So he starts turning to work, right? But what's his conclusion? So verse 17 of chapter 2. This is his conclusion after looking at wisdom, folly, pleasures, and toil. He says this. So I hated life. You don't have to raise your hand, but be honest with yourself. Is anybody in here feeling that? He says, so I hated life. There have been moments that I feel that. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. And yet they will have control over all the toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. And so my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For people may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. And then they must leave all they own to others who have not toiled for it. This too is meaningless. And a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun. All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This, too, is meaningless. And then, all of a sudden, the teacher in Ecclesiastes starts to sound very bipolar. Suddenly, in verse 24, he says this, people can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This too I see is from the hand of God, for without him who can eat or find enjoyment. Hold on. You just spent a whole chapter telling us finding pleasure and satisfaction in stuff of this world is meaningless, it's fleeting, and then you tell us that all the work of your hands, your toil, the things that you do, that's meaningless too, and your conclusion is... So there's nothing better than to find pleasure in the work that you do. Is this making sense to anybody? Because if it is, I can give you this microphone and you could please come tell me what it is. This is, this is why some scholars have said the best translation for Hevel is enigma. Like, <laughs> What are you talking about? This doesn't even seem to make sense. Well, if you remember, if you remember what I said at the beginning, that the teacher in Ecclesiastes is looking at trying to make sense of Genesis 1 and 2 in a Genesis 3 world. If you remember how we said we need to find where this is in the story, we can start to make a little more light of it. If you remember at the beginning of the story of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, that God himself worked and took pleasure in his work. He would work and he would say, this is good. And then he 
in his work creates mankind, man and woman. And what does he give for them to do? Work this land I made for you. And enjoy the goodness of it. You could eat of any of these trees here, except for this one. I gave you trees that yield fruit. I gave you animals to name. You get to have control and dominion over everything. I gave you this beautiful world, the same world that I was looking at this beautiful sunset over the ocean at last week. I gave this to you. Enjoy it. Care for it. That's the work that you're to do. And the author of Ecclesiastes is saying that is what's best. That was what we were designed for, was to work and take pleasure in the goodness of God's creation. But he understands that something happened after that in Genesis 3. And the first time we start to hear work is a bad word is in Genesis 3. That when God comes to the man and woman after they rebelled against him, they did the one thing he asked them not to do. He gave them everything they could ever want and they still tried to take more for themselves, for satisfaction outside of him, to prove themselves to be of a status and a position that didn't belong to them. The things Ecclesiastes is talking about here. He comes to them and he says, the consequence of this is that now when you work, it will be toil. That is the first time toil is used for work. It will be difficult. There will be thorns and thistles. And so the author of Ecclesiastes is comparing and contrasting these two extremes. Because of the rebellion, because of the fall, because of everything that started to go wrong, people now are searching for satisfaction and significance, for pleasures and joys and the things of this world that are fleeting, or to build a significance for themselves through their work, and it's just toil. And what he's doing is he's calling us to remember, no, remember the way it was supposed to be in the beginning, is that when we find satisfaction in God, the one who has given us all these things, that's where our significance is. And the author is saying, if you don't know that story, and if you don't have a hope for him to come back and make those things right again, then it will all be meaningless, hevel. And Paul says the same thing. If you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, he says, If Christ has not been raised, then our faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are to be pitied above all others. Ecclesiastes uses this refrain over and over that everything under the sun is hevel. It's but a breath. Because he knows, because of Genesis 3, everything is now temporary, including the sun itself. This view on eternity he has in his wisdom is recognizing even one day the sun's going to burn out and it will be gone. And so if all you have to live for is everything under the sun, it's all hevel. But if you can live under the true sun, the resurrection, this is what Paul's saying, if that's true, that that curse of death has been undone, that a body that was supposed to return to dust, the same fate of the fools and the wise, now lives eternally, 
and you live under that sun, then you could take pleasure in the work of your hands today. I have a, a slide up there, Patrick. This is, this is the one thing I want you to take with you today. That our work can never bring satisfaction or significance. But when we find our satisfaction in Jesus, then our work becomes significant. And so the, the last part of the game, what the hevel, you don't worry, you don't have to do this with a partner this time. But I want you to take that with you today and I want you to ask yourself, what is different? How do I see that different if I see Jesus giving me that thing to do? If Jesus had come to me with a bed and some sheets and he said, this is yours. I've given it to you so that you can enjoy rest. You could sleep. I've given it to you for you to care for. Make the bed, clean the sheets. I want you to enjoy this, but take good care of it. I'd probably have a different view as a kid than my mom just telling me, just shut up and go make your bed. And so your task is to do that with the thing you find hevel in life right now. What if Jesus personally handed this thing for me to do and said, I want you to enjoy this and I want you to care for it? How would you look at that one thing differently? Because we no longer in the story live just under the sun. This is the last thing. Isaiah 60 says it in verse 18 through 20. No longer will violence be heard in your land, no ruin or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. This is a vision for the future he has. Just like the man in Ecclesiastes, he has an eye on eternity. He says in verse 19, the sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again and your moon will wane no more. We find this again in Revelation 21 and 22 at the picture of full restoration, the end of the story, the eternity we get to live in forever with Jesus. Revelation 21, 22 says, in this picture of eternity, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp, and the nations will walk by his light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Again, Revelation 22, verse 5, there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 15, when he's talking about the resurrection, he says, because of this, you do not work in vain. Your toil matters. When we find our satisfaction in the work of Jesus, who took the thorns and thistles upon his brow, who did the work on our behalf and said it is finished, when we find satisfaction in him, our work starts to become significant, even here and now because it's painting a picture for what it will be in eternity. Pray with me. Father, too often we keep our eyes fixed on what is right in front of us, the temporal, the fleeting, the vapors, the hevel. And we pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear for what you have in store for eternity and that we would trust in you, the author 
and perfecter of our faith, the one who has done the work on our behalf, that we would come to you for satisfaction, that we would find our significance in you, that we would be able to delight in the work that you've prepared beforehand for us to walk in. God, may we be that people. And not for the sake of ourselves alone, but for the good of the city, for the good of one another, and for the glory of you, Father, and the power of your spirit, and in the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.